This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of the Torah with the fellow seeker of biblical truth. Today, I am deeply honored to be joined by a living legend, Pat Boone. Pat Boone has sold more than 46 million records. That is more than Eric Clapton, it's more than Simon and Garfunkel, and it's more than Bob Dylan. He has 38 platinum top 40 singles and holds the record for the most straight weeks on the Billboard chart at 220, no one else is even close. Pat's beautiful voice is somewhere in the background of all of our heads with songs such as Love Letters in the Sand, Speedy Gonzalez, Moody River, I'll Be Home, Autumn Leaves, and I'll See You in My Dreams. Pat has also starred in 12 movies, a hit TV show, and has authored many books. We have discussed often on The Rabbi's Husband how we are now living through a world's historic friendship between Christians and Jews centered around Israel and the Torah that we love and share. But that friendship, like all things, come out of somewhere. And in this case, it came out of the religious imagination of a few people, including Pat Boone. Pat, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. <laughs> wow, that's quite an intro. By the way, I, I need to, I won't take all the trouble. Some of those stats are a little bit skewed. I didn't have so many platinum singles, but I had a platinum album and many uh, 41 chart records in the uh, in the 50s, one more than Elvis, he had 40. We were matching each other record for record. And then into the 60s, 21 more chart records. So some 60-something chart records. And one of the records I hold in the record business is 220 consecutive weeks without ever being off the single chart. Elton John comes closest with 157 weeks. But somehow, because our MO on the little independent but aggressive record label I was on, Dot. Uh, our MO was soon as a record peaked, uh, we came out with the next record, even though that the other record was still on the chart. So so if a record went to number seven, dropped to number nine, out came the next record. If it was number 36, dropped to 40, out came the next record. So for 220 consecutive weeks, I was never off the single record chart. So it was been a phenomenal recording career, but also I'm here representing you got your you have your wife the rabbi the Christian minister is my wife Shirley. <laughs> wow. And we and we are both adopted Jews. I wear a high and a Mogen David at the gym when and when I don't have anything else on and people look at that and they say are you Jewish? I said yeah. Pat Boone you're Jewish? Yeah. I'm, by adoption. Yes, I'm adopted as a Jew. I am a, a Christian but do- adopted into the family of God's chosen people. We are so lucky to have you. Wow. And that's, you know, so we're on the same wavelength. We have so much more in common than we even know yet. Absolutely. And one of the, and I've read that the song that you're most proud of is actually not one of the ones I listed, but is one that is familiar to every moviegoer above a certain age. Exodus. Exodus. Or April Love. I mean, I don't know, April Love was a movie song. And uh, uh, one of my many movie title songs, but Exodus, was that what you were referring to? Exodus, yes. I, I read that you wrote the lyrics to the theme song of Exodus. This land is mine. God gave this land to me. Yeah, I wrote those words. Ernest Gold's melody had no words. And uh, it turned out that uh, when my publisher 
my ma- manager, I mean, contacted the publisher, Chapel Music, saying Pat Boone wants to know the words to that melody. He wants to record it. And we were told there won't be any lyrics because there were three people, three men who had a veto power over lyrics that had been submitted by professional lyricists. And one of them was Ernest Gold, the composer of the melody. The one was Chapel Music that published and owned the song. And then was Otto Preminger, the director producer of the film. And even though professional writers had submitted lyrics, they were turned down by one or more of those three. So the publisher was saying, looks like it's just going to continue to be an instrumental theme. And that's okay. I said, it's not okay with me. I've got to sing that melody. I'm going to see if I can get an idea to submit to some professional songwriter. I wasn't thinking of writing the words myself, but it was a Christmas Eve, Mark. It was a Christmas Eve, and my wife Shirley was saying, Pat, please quit playing that record over and over by Ferrati and Teicher. So this would have been Christmas Eve 1959? Yes, and it was already an instrumental hit across the world, but no words. Nobody could sing it. And so I was listening to try to get an idea to submit to some professional songwriters. I knew plenty of them. But Shirley was saying, please, let's get the Christmas presents under the tree so we can go to bed. It's 1230. I said, honey, one more time. And I put the needle on the record again. Bum, 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 bum. When that melody hit, the words hit me. This land is mine. And I thought, wait a minute, I've read Leon Uris's book, Exodus. I've read Moses' book in the Bible, Exodus. That's <laughs> right. the whole story, those four words. This land is mine. And then I put the needle down, bum, 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 bum. And the words came immediately. God gave this land to me. And I literally, in 20 minutes, took dictation. I just, wow. when I kept putting the needle back on the melody, and each strain of melody as it came, words came with it. In 20 minutes, I had written the words to the theme song from the movie Exodus. And it is now considered the second national anthem of Israel. There was a big um, event that took place about three years ago. My wife Shirley was with me at Yad Vashem, where they took my words that they asked, you must have written them on something. I said, and can we have those words that you wrote? We want to put them on the wall of the righteous Gentile in Yad Vashem. I said, you can have them now, but I need to let you know. I grabbed what was handy at the time. It was the back of a Christmas card. And they said, Shia ben Yehuda, the director, said, that's even better because we know you Christian evangelicals or evangelical Christians are our best friends in the world. So, yes, that's perfect. He said, so he said, give us that card and we'll put it on the wall of the righteous Gentiles. So several years ago. At Yad Vashem, there was a ceremony with military, with government officials, and with the top people at Yad Vashem, my wife Shirley and a bunch of us, and they, we gave them, framed the Christmas card with those lyrics printed, and they told me at the time, we have a campaign underway. We want every Jewish child in Israel to know those words. This land is mine. God gave this land to me. And, uh, and again, I get emotional because... That is another highlight in my life, that uh, there's nothing more important. Well, there are several things that are as important, like my eternal future, but in my lifetime on this earth, to know that the words I wrote to what is now the second Jewish national anthem are on the wall of the righteous Gentile with Corey Ten Boom, with Oscar Schindler, with many others who supported Jews during the Holocaust, that my words are, are there on the 
at Yad Vashem. So that's the story of Exodus. How did you develop such a love of the Torah and of the Jewish people and of the Jewish state? It was uh, our home in Nashville. My dad, a building contractor, mom, a registered nurse, two practical professions. But my brother, I'm the oldest of four kids, my brother, two sisters. For us, it was just as practical because it was that to them that we studied the Bible together, that we read the Bible. We read it from cover to cover. We, we knew the Old Testament and the New Testament. Remarkable. Now, do you have any memories of May 14th, 1948? Was it a big deal in your family or in your community? Not that I remember because, let's see, that was uh, 1948. I was 14 at that time. I was in high school, and I do not truthfully. I, I mean, I remember it happening. I remember mom and daddy being very pleased. Because as far as they've concerned, Jerusalem and Israel had always been the promised land. They never even imagined they would ever go there, nor did I. But we read about it. I mean, every page of the Bible, as we read in our Bible, centered in Israel. And so for Israel to become a nation again, we knew that the prophets had said that that eventually Israel would be restored and Jews called back from all over the world and would, they would never be driven out again. I could tell you a story about when I sang that up just after the, the Six-Day War, when I was up in, uh, in, in what had been occupied territory. It was part of, part of uh, Jordan, I think, and the, no way, it's Syria, the, because occupied Syria. When I was in a bunker up there, Henry Kissinger was still trying to work out the lines of demarcation to call the war ended between Egypt, Syria, and Israel, and Jordan, and going back and forth. But shells were still coming from toward Damascus. I was in a bunker up there in this uh, northern outpost to visit with the troops. And uh, I told the commander of that outpost that my theory was God was restoring the boundaries of Israel to the Davidic boundaries, if not the Solomon time but at least the time of David. And he said, I hope you're wrong. I said, why? He said, because it means more battle, more bloodshed. So I hope you're wrong. And they asked me to sing something for the troops. I said, well, I don't have any music. What, what do you know of my, of my music? Like a chorus, they said, sing Speedy Gonzalez. <laughs> <laughs> sing Speedy Gonzalez. I, I read that, 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 that during the Yom Kippur War, you flew over to Israel to be with the troops. And so that was it. So it was, so, and you sang Speedy Gonzalez to them? Yeah. And so then I said, look, let me sing something a little more appropriate. So standing in the bunker, I'd already had that discussion with the commander. He said, I hope you're wrong about restoring the boundaries to Davidic times. And I said, well, it's just my theory, but I believe God wants Israel to be all the land that he's told Abraham and David that it was there. So I said, let me sing this. So with no accompaniment, I sang, this land is mine. God gave this land to me all the way to the end. Until I die, this land is mine. It was very moving to all of us. And with the ground shaking now and then from an incoming. Wow. But that it, it ended there. Now, I was with Prime Minister Rabin about a year after that. And uh, I told him where I had been. He said, where were you? I said, I was up there in that northernmost post up uh, in, in occupied Syria. He said, just a moment. He went to the map. He put his finger on the map. He said, you sang a prophecy. I said, I did. Where you were singing that night as part of the new map of Israel. In that land, that bunker 
where I sang, this land is mine. It is now a part of, it was Syria, but it is now part of the new map of Israel. And Prime Minister Rabin told me that in his office. So as I sang that song, I was singing a prophecy. <laughs> and I've had so many other experiences like that, that um, just draw me. So, I mean, my first Passover in the Diplomat Hotel in Israel, and they and they asked me to sing that. And the cancer that night was from uh, Israel, but the rabbi was from New Jersey. Huh. And it was like 800 pilgrimage Jews. And my, Shirley and the girls and I, my daughters, were sharing our first Passover Seder in Jerusalem, like next year in Jerusalem. And these, these Jews had come in from everywhere. And they asked me to come up and say a word. And I read from the 133rd Psalm, how blessed it is for brethren to dwell, dwell together in unity. And said, I've asked, been asked to sing this song. I have no music. I started to sing it. And as I got to, so take my hand and walk, there was a voice that joined me, and it was the cancer behind me. He'd been singing in Hebrew, but now he was singing with me in English. He knew the words in English, and together we finished the song, Until I Die, This Land is Mine. What a great Passover experience. It was fantastic because people told me afterwards they came from all over the world for their one time at Passover in, in uh, Jerusalem. And most of it, it seemed normal. I mean, it was pretty much like Passover seders everywhere, but they expected something different. Well, that night, <laughs> it was very different as I sang Exodus and was joined in my own lyrics and that melody with the cantor singing with me until I die, this land is mine. You gave the attendees the answer, the answer nobody will ever forget to the, to the great Passover question. How is this night different from all other nights? Oh, yes, right. It was different from all other nights. All other nights. Wow. Now, uh, let's go back to February 1955 when you were playing at Brooklyn High School in Cleveland, Ohio, and you had a pretty good opening act. Yeah, he was a kid named Aaron Elvis Presley. He was known as a rockabilly singer down in Shreveport. He'd made one record on Sun Records, and he was known as a rockabilly. He was singing country songs with some sort of a rock beat that was becoming popular. I, this was October, and in March of that year, I had made my very first record of a rhythm and blues song called Two Hearts, Two Kisses. I mean, you sold a million records of that, right? A million records of that song. A million records. My first record was a million seller of Two Hearts, Two Kisses. That was in March. In May of that year, I recorded Ain't That a Shame, that's Domino's song, which sold three million. It hadn't sold three million yet. It was still going, and then October, a third record was uh, Crazy Little Mama Come Knock, Knock, Knockin', Knockin' at My Front Door, Door, Door. And that was on its way to selling a million. And I, the top DJ in the country at that time in Cleveland had asked me to come in to, to host his sock hop or to be his main guest. And you know, sock hop in those days would take place in school gyms and the DJ would play records. And if they could get somebody that had made one of those records to come in, he would lip sync his record at their sock hop. So I had three hit records going and I flew into Cleveland. Bill Randall was the name of the DJ. He picked me up at the airport. And he said, we got a new kid coming up from Shreveport going to be on before you tonight. We want to see what he's like. He's RCA Victor has signed him. I said, what's his name? And he said, oh, you wouldn't have heard of it. It's Elvis Presley, which was an unusual name, Elvis. And I said, I've heard of him. I've heard his record on a jukebox in Dallas. I said, Bill, he's a hillbilly. Are you kidding? 
this is rock and roll time, isn't it? He said, well, yeah, because his song was <laughs> a Bill Monroe bluegrass song, Blue Moon of Kentucky. That was his song? Okay. Yeah. And so Bill sort of grinned. He said, well, RCA Victor thinks they've got something, and that's why I want to have him come up. So we've flown him up, and he'll be on before you tonight. Well, he was, and he and three of his buddies appeared backstage, and I was there already, and the kids, 3,000 kids were dancing and hopping up and down to the records and waiting for me to come on. They they knew I was going to be there because I had three million selling singles at that point, just since March of that year. And uh, Elvis comes in and he's, you know, his hair is breathed and kind of falling over his face. And he's got um, his pants are too long. He's wearing white bucks. They're all scuffed up. And I said, hi, Elvis. I held out my hand. He was nice to meet you. And I, he didn't know how to shake hands. He just extended his hand. You could shake it, but he, nobody, <laughs> nobody had really taught him to grip the other hand. He just let you squeeze his hand. Elvis Presley did not know how to shake hands in 1955. He may have known, but he, all I know is I gave him a good firm grip, and, and I didn't get a firm grip back. And, and then I said, well, Bill Randall seems to think some big things may be ahead for you. And he sort of mumbled, well, I don't know about that. I hope so. And he just leaned back against the wall with his buddies. And I could tell he was shy. He wasn't interested in a conversation. So I waited and Bill Randall introduced him to the crowd of 3,000 kids. Here's a fella coming up from Shreveport. You don't know him, but he's going to make a record for uh, RCA Victor. And we just want to make him feel warm and welcome here tonight. Let's welcome Elvis Presley. Well, Elvis came out and there, uh, there was nice applause the kids, I could tell there was a little excitement. He looked like the guy standing in the hallway with his buddies laughing at the guys that were serious about school. And they had the cigarettes rolled up in their sleeves and, you know, not interested in scholastics or athletics. The guy that the girls are not supposed to associate with, that's what he looked like. <laughs> but, that, but that was fascinating to them. But then when he sang, Blue Moon of Kentucky, keep on shining. You know, they liked what the way he looked, but that was not the kind of music they were interested in. And so they gave him a nice hand. And then he said, thank you very much. I like to do the other side of that record for you. And hope you like it. And he sang, that's all right, mama. That's all right with me. And it was a rhythm and blues song. And they loved that. And he was good at it. And I think that was his first big hit, wasn't it? That's all right, mama. Well, no, no, no. His first big hit was uh, Heartbreak Hotel. Oh, okay. A ballad. No, that was to follow later. And Hound Dog and all those other songs. They, uh, He was just getting into what we call rock and roll. But Mark, there was no rock and roll in mid-1955. Rock and roll was an expression in R&B music, which generally had sort of an erotic connotation. Let's rock and roll, honey, all night long. But when the white audiences, the big pop audiences, began to hear about rock, rock around the clock with Bill Haley, of course, that meant dance. Let's have a ball. Let's have fun. And so it had a more innocent connotation. But when when Elvis, his first record was uh, Heartbreak Hotel. By then, I had six million selling singles in February of 56. But that night, the kids, they didn't know who he was. They were excited by the way he looked and the way he sang that one R&B song. But then I came out and I had three rock and roll records that were million sellers. So, of course, I got all the screens. But later, when he and I both were about a year and a half later, when we were both renting homes in Bel Air and both making movies at 20th Century Fox and 
I went over to his house one night to have dinner with him. And I said, Elvis, that first night we met in Cleveland, I said, you seem so shy. Kind of, I was afraid you were scared even. He said, well, I don't know how to talk to you, man. What do you mean? I said, what do you mean? He said, uh, well, you were a star. I said, I said, a star? I'd only been making records since March. Yeah, but you were on the charts. I didn't know how to talk to you. And so it just shows that he was genuinely a nice, kind, well-brought-up young boy from Memphis. I was from Nashville. And he was not starstruck. I won't put it like that. But he was intimidated by the fact that though I was only six months older than he was, I already had hit records. and he. That's what he wanted. It hadn't happened yet. And he just didn't know how to talk to me. Well, of course, we both got over that and we played tag team football and we visited each other's sets when we were making movies at 20th together. And we stayed friends, friendly competitors through the years. The, uh, there was a, I've got a tape of it at home where they were interviewing him after about a year when he was so hot and I was matching him record for record. And they, the interviewer said, well, do you have any favorites among the other singers who do you like as a singer he said that pat boone he said he he sings ballads better than anybody i mean he can sing rock and roll too i mean he said i bought boone's records before i was recording well that could only have been in about an 11 month period but that's what he said but he was very complimentary about my singing of ballads now he'd already done heartbreak hotel which is a ballad but but then after that was Hound Dog and, and all the other rock tunes he was doing, and he wasn't thought of yet as a ballad singer, but I was, although I'd done a lot of rock songs too. So we were friends, we were competitors, and then, of course, the last time we met was a, a month before his death in Memphis at the airport when he was on his way back to uh, the International Hotel where he was headlining, and I was on my way with my family and my four daughters. I because I had four teenage daughters by then. I mean, they were all in their teens, like 13, 14, 15, 16, only three and a half, 3.8 years between the four of them. So I was on my way to Orlando and doing a family show. And he, and when he said Orlando, he said, he turned his butt. He said, that's the wrong way, man. He turned his butt. He said, Boone's always going the wrong way. And I said, well, Elvis, it depends on where you're coming from. <laughs> and that was, the, that was our last discussion. Because a month later, I was in Pittsburgh with my family. We, I went in a barbershop to get a trim, and somebody came rushing in to say, Elvis is dead. It's on the news. Oh, God. And I couldn't believe it. I'd been with him a month before, and I patted him on his stomach. He gained weight. And I said, well, you carrying your money with you here to Las Vegas? <laughs> no, I've been, I've been eating too good, man. But he says, I'll sweat it off in Vegas. And that's when he said, where are you going? But. We had that kind of camaraderie. We were two boys from Tennessee that um, had hit it big. So uh, we took the family to a, a pilgrimage to Graceland last summer for Elvis Week. And this is actually our second time. And God willing, we'll go again uh, the year after next. And one thing that's striking there is how much Elvis, who, of course, was a Christian, loved the Jews. He always wore a high. He has a, a star David on his mother's grave. There are canceled checks to the uh, Memphis Jewish Community Center. What was his relationship to the Jews? He was brought up in the same kind of church background I was. He and his mama and dad went to church, and he was hungry spiritually. When I went to see him at the International Hotel when he made his comeback from no live performing for several years, just concentrating on movies, and I visited with him in, the, in, in this big walk-in closet in the presidential suite, and he, 
he confided in me. He said, you know, I wish I could go to church like you do. And I said, why not? I do. Yeah. But he says, if I go, I'll be distracting from the preacher and the kids will want me to sign things. I said, don't you think that happens to me? (laughs) It happens when I go to the same services, but I tell the kids, I'll sign your bulletins after the service. I'm here for the same reason you are. And sure, they'll be looking at you while I always go sit on the front row or the second row (laughs) where I won't be looking at them. They can look at me if they want, but they'll be seeing me and my family if they're with me doing the same things they're doing and, and worshiping the same as they are. And then I sign the bulletins afterwards. I don't care how long it takes because they'll take those bulletins to school and show their kids and say, where'd you get that? You mean Pat Boone or Elvis Presley was just, can I come to your church? Wow. <laughs> and let it, let it be a, a, it's a, an inspiration. an angelical outreach. Yeah. And he said, no, I can't do that. He said, do you know Oral Roberts? I said, sure. He said, I'd like to talk to Oral Roberts because he was, you know, this renowned minister. I said, let me give you a clue. Your name is Elvis Presley. <laughs> you get on the phone, you call Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, say, this is Elvis Presley. You don't have to sing anything. Just say you're Elvis and you want to talk to President Roberts. I guarantee you in 30 seconds, he'll be on the phone. He said, no, I can't do that. I don't know him. He said, can you, can you call him for me? And I said, okay. So I called Earl Roberts and he, he flew out and met with Elvis and then told me later, said, the man is spiritually hungry. He misses going to church with his family. We knew that after concerts, many times, he always had a gospel quartet that sang with him in his shows. It was the Stamps Quartet or the, uh, oh, I forgot the names of some of them, but uh, he would then, he would make them sing with him till four in the morning, singing all kind of gospel songs. Yeah. After the show. After his show, they'd be backstage in Las Vegas or wherever. And they'd, not every night, of course, but particularly in Las Vegas, where all he had to do was just go upstairs and go to bed. He'd keep them with him and they would sing gospel songs till three or four in the morning because he was singing with these gospel quartets. They knew them all and he loved them. And for him, it was taking him back to his growing up days when he and his mom and dad were always in the church services, like I was always with my mom and father and my brother and two sisters. It was the way we grew up. But Israel and the Jews were always in part of our history. We knew that. It was in our everything that we knew in the Bible. And that's true of all evangelical Christians, by the way. Um, Netanyahu has said to me personally, I know that you evangelical Christians are our best friends in the world. And, and I know that uh, Bibi Netanyahu has uh, a nickname for you. Yeah, Speedy. <laughs> he says, hello, Speedy, come on in. Because he loved Speedy Gonzalez when he was at MIT in, uh, in, in Massachusetts and college. And he liked Elvis, but he loved my record of Speedy Gonzalez. I read a profile of you in the Jerusalem Post that said that you've been to Israel more than 20 times and have brought thousands of Christian tourists with you on those visits. And uh, you had a magnificent definition of Zionism. You said, I am a Zionist. In my perspective, a Zionist is a person who believes God created Israel for the Jewish people. Israel has fulfilled the prophecy and promise that God made to Abraham. And through Israel, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Right. And I've written our columns for World Net Daily and one or two printed in the Jerusalem Post. One of them was called Israel World MVP and another one satirically called Who Needs Israel Anyway? Because I'd read that that saying was going around in Great Britain. You know, if we just get rid of this pesky Israel, you know, we could get on with peace and, uh, and world benefits or something like Israel is the problem. 
And so I said, who needs Israel anyway? And I, and I got the help of people in Israel who gave me all the bullet points I needed to show that Israel has become a blessing to every nation in the world, agriculturally, medically, philosophically, musically, governmentally, technologically, that Israel, little Israel, has had more Nobel, proportionately Nobel Prize winners, and contributed even to nations who hate them and use the blessings created by Israel to curse Israel. But God's promise to Abraham has been Abraham has been fulfilled. All the nations of the earth have been blessed in so many material ways, more than America, more than any other country can lay claim to, and yet, in some ways, the most hated country in the world by big, big nations that want to see Israel destroyed. Well, that can't go on. God's not going to put up with it forever. And I, of course, as I say, I want to be on God's side in anything and in everything. And I know that as I promised, as I think it was Isaiah 39, I'm not sure of the scripture of reference, but I think it's where he talks about where there will be a highway going from Egypt to Assyria through Israel, and of course, pronouncing, I mean, I could look it up, but I think it's the 39th chapter of Isaiah. But all, I, you know, I, I read the Bible year, uh, cover to cover, Genesis, first chapter, God created in the beginning, God created to the end of the book of Revelation every year in the one year Bible. I wish everybody would get is 365 daily portions. Huh. It's a lot of the Old Testament each day, a lot of the New Testament each day. Psalms and Proverbs in 365 daily portions. So this is my 36th or 37th year to read every word of the Bible, highlight, underscore, write notes in the margins. And it's amazing, amazing how often the daily portion of the Old Testament scripture pertains directly to the New Testament portion. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. It wasn't, it wasn't designed that way. And therefore, I, I don't think it's coincidental. I think it's God wanting us to know. Like I, I, at a, one of our Passover meetings and seders in the home of our doctor at that time, Dr. Carnes, who went to the temple every day, and uh, I'd written a book called Questions About God and Answers That Could Change Your Life. And uh, I gave him a copy of it because he's a deeply spiritual man, he and his wife. And I was at their Passover seder with my wife. And and so uh, he said, he told his people that toward the beginning, I mean, toward the end of the service, he said, my guest here, Pat Boone, has written a book called Questions About God and Answers That Could Change Your Life. And uh, he said, I've read it once. I'm going to read it again. And I want you all to read it. So that was surprising to me because I, and I was glad. Well, one of his uh, relatives came over as we were starting to eat. He said, what's this about? What is this book? And I said, well, I tell you, if you'll just read Isaiah 53, you'll know what it's about. And he didn't know what I was talking about. So I said, I had my Bible. I said, here, read this. And he read the first, I don't know, 20 verses of Isaiah 53. And you're probably well well familiar with it. But it's scriptures about the Messiah, the suffering servant. We esteemed him stricken. There was nothing about his appearance that drew us to him. But he he was wounded for our transgressions. And with his stripes, we were healed. I said, here, read this. And he read it. And his comment to me was, well, this is about Jesus. I said, yes, it is. And it's been there all along. I didn't didn't tell him it was about Jesus. 
he just he read it and he and the the description of the one who would come about dying for our sins and with his stripes we were healed he was buried with the rich and they they gambled for his clothes and these things that are obviously so specifically like in Micah he was born in Bethlehem the messiah will be born in Bethlehem of Judea though you're a little country out of you will come he that we're looking for the one i mean beth what what leader do we know that would be a world known jewish leader was born in bethlehem so i mean the the scriptures are all they tell the story as i say i i read through the bible every year for 37 years i think it is now and it's just fascinating to me i learn more every time but i see the way everything is connected and i i feel more jewish all the time i was there as I say, for the uh, for the the what am I trying to say? The 70th anniversary. It was in 2018 when the embassy was dedicated. And oh, I was there. You you were I was there for the embassy. Uh, you were there as well. I was there too. Oh, we could have met there. Okay. I was doing a concert in the Henry Crown uh, uh, Theater, a, a well a sold out thing, and I can send you if you like a copy of that concert to see it 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 was fairly hastily put together but it was with jewish and 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 american performers and um we gave honor and and did videos for each of the seven decades of the history of israel in the modern era and of course the director of yad vashem was there and i sang exodus with the with jerusalem symphony oh wow so i was there and i sang exodus that night with the Jerusalem Symphony, it was thrilling. It was just incredible. But then I had to come home. My wife was in a hospital, and uh, on her way out, I'm sorry to say, uh, because we couldn't we couldn't get her well. But I had to get back to her. So I was hosting the tour that night. I mean that trip. In addition to doing the concert uh, for the 70th anniversary of the modern state of Israel, I was also hosting. I forget how many seven or 800 people. And I had to leave the tour and, and hustle home to the hospital to be with my wife. We did bring her home where she was, you know, hospital bound in our den where I'm talking to you now for the last uh, year of her life. But she was just as dedicated to Israel. We felt just as Jewish. She was jealous that I could be there for the 70th anniversary and do the concert celebrating the uh, 70th anniversary, but you were there too, huh, Mark? I was, I was there. Yes. At, 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 in that incredible afternoon, I'll always remember when the uh, embassy in Jerusalem was consecrated. And, and see, only this president was a, did that. I mean, other presidents said, yeah, it should happen. And should, they said they would do it and uh, recognize Jerusalem as the capital. And they never did it. Uh, we got a can-do man in the White House who has been more supportive of Israel than any previous president, even more than Reagan. The only one who might lay claim to that is Truman, who in 1948 had the U.S. side with Israel, as as all of his uh, advisors were telling him not to do. They wanted Arab oil and support. They didn't need to side with little Israel. But uh, I'm trying to think of the name Ben Jacobson. I think it was his his um, partner back in the haberdashery he owned in Kansas City came to see him and. They must have talked about Israel a lot when they were just partners in that store before Truman became vice president, then president. And he, they went behind closed doors, and uh, Jacobson 
reminded him of God's promises about Israel. And when the door opened to the Oval Office, Truman said the U.S. supports Israel in their statehood. The power of friendship and the power of the Bible together. May 14th, 1948. Yeah. So that's why I'm just so woven into personally into the ancient and modern history of Israel. Yes, I've hosted as many as 20, oh no, 1,200 people at a time, sometimes hosting tours with CBN, Christian Broadcasting, that are totally committed to Israel. And with George Otis, who's created the Voice of Peace and Voice of Hope, Christian Ministries located in Israel, broadcasting from Israel, as does God TV and Daystar. These are Christian worldwide ministries that broadcast not just in but from Israel and and really trying to bring us all together. And I understand, of course, why there's such feeling uh, among Jewish people and and, and um, suspicion of Christian support. I mean, I've got too many stories I can't tell you all in one call or one podcast. So let's just talk talk about, um, Shirley, your, your wife for a moment, a, a, a couple of things. One, uh, I see the, that your father-in-law was a very well-known country singer in the 30s and 40s. Oh, yeah, yeah, Red Foley. Red Foley, Hall of Fame. Was he a mentor to you? Not really. I mean, by osmosis in a way. I mean, the one thing I loved about his singing was his earnest sincerity about anything he sang. And that was that was a lot of pop country songs like Tennessee Saturday Night and all kinds of uh, pop country songs that were pure country. But he also was famous and loved for his gospel recordings, Peace in the Valley, Closer Walk with Thee, that songs became famous classics that he he was the first to bring into the charts. Peace in the Valley was his song? Yeah, Peace in the Valley and Closer Walk with Thee. And uh, he was famous for his gospel songs as well as his, as his uh, country songs. So when he was um, appearing on the, what's it, what was it called, the WLS Barn Dance Show in Chicago, and a guy named Roy Acuff, who was host of the Prince Albert Grand Ole Opry in Nashville, which was nationally broadcast, the major country broadcast, Roy Acuff retired. Red Foley took his place and for 10 years was the host of the premier show on radio. It wasn't TV of the Grand Ole Opry. And when he moved to Nashville from Chicago, he brought his three daughters. Among the oldest was his daughter, Shirley, who at 16 transferred to the high school where I was. <laughs> and and uh, I immediately asked to be introduced to this pretty young girl, something more than pretty. She was, there was something even more special than her natural beauty and allure. And uh, we were handholders and lovers. We became, we were very much in love. We didn't kiss for nine months because even in high school, I'd been through two going steady experiences with girls. And no sooner did I, did we say we would swap a ring or a, something and we'd go, we'd go steady. Then I realized she wants me to call her every day and talk to her for three hours after school. And I, I felt trapped into that. And I didn't want to, involved Shirley Foley in that. So we just dated and were very much in love, but we didn't kiss for nine months till I, after a hayride at the beginning of our senior year in the autumn, warm autumn night, we'd been in a hayride with friends. I mean, the, from school chums and I had access to my dad's car and I drove her back to her place, very much nicer home than ours. And at the door, I just obeyed the impulse and, and kissed her just 
a light little, little tiny little kiss on the lips. And I came home on cloud nine. She went in and told her sisters that it had happened. But she said, I waited nine months for that. <laughs> that, little, that little touch. But I, it was enough. I was hooked for life. And so you course, were married uh, for we, 63 years. 65 years. 65, 65 years. Well, yeah, we married in uh, in 1953, and uh, she went to heaven in uh, 2018. So I'm sure all the listeners are, are asking, what is the secret to a long and happy marriage, particularly when you're literally a rock star? For me, of course, it was my grounding in the Bible. I mean, we knew that when we married at 19, we eloped. I asked her dad's permission, but I didn't ask my folks because he was moving. Her dad read Foley. His wife had died, her mom, and he, he was a widower, and he was taking his three daughters to Springfield, Missouri to start a country music television show called the Ozark Jubilee. And I couldn't stand the fact that she was being taken away, and she didn't couldn't stand leaving. So we agreed that we wanted to get married at 19. We were freshmen in college and uh, about to be sophomores. She was already very popular in college more than I was, but uh, she was a cheerleader and I mean, she was a beauty. So I asked her dad, Red Foley, I said, I said, Shirley and I want to get married. And he said, is this what you want, honey? She said, yes, daddy. And he looked at me, had tears in his eyes. And he said, are you going to take care of my girl? And I naively said, yes, sir, I am. I'm going to take care of Shirley. (laughs) How did I know what in the world I was promising? But... And the tears rolled down his nose into his coffee. And he said, if this is what you both want, I'll buy your rings. And he did. And he said, when are you thinking of getting married? And we said, tomorrow. (laughs) Tomorrow. Wow. (laughs) Tomorrow. Because I I couldn't wait to ask my parents because they would have tried to put a straitjacket on me and make me wait till we were out of college. But but she was willing and her dad was willing because he was going to try to take care of his three daughters without their mom. And I was taking his oldest daughter off his hands. And, uh, but that, I mean, that was not his thinking, but he was, he knew we were in love. He, we'd been in love for a couple of years. He knew that. And so he said, okay, because he married her mom when she was 17. And, and that's another whole bunch of stories as well. But um, he, it was okay with him. So we married at 19 and then we knew we were making our promises and our covenant with God, not just each other. So we did have problems as a, when I was as an entertainer, I was traveling so much of the time. In the early days, she showed me that I was gone 50% of the time traveling, doing concerts, other countries. Uh, I mean, I was, my records were successful all over the world. I was, I was invited to come to all the countries and to promote. And I did, I loved it. It was exciting, but it left her at home with our four daughters and, and the housekeepers. And the, I mean, we didn't have nannies, but we had housekeepers. Shirley was the ultimate mother and wife, but she showed me I was leaving her alone and the kids. And so we moved to, from New Jersey to California where I could do movies, records, and television all from one place. And the girls could be in the same school and have some continuity. And that was wisdom on her part. And so from then on, even though the temptations and the distractions of the entertainment world drew me in some ways apart from Shirley and from our totally Christian life. We loved each other. And even when we were tempted 
to maybe part, it was our commitments to God as well as to each other that made us hang in there. I, for me, it was that I knew I loved her. I knew I was not sure she loved me and she wasn't sure I really loved her the way we started out loving. But we had four daughters and each of us knew that our daughter's only chance in life for the upbringing and the family history that we wanted them to have depended on us being together. And so Shirley first and then me put ourselves last and God and our family second and then each other third or ourselves third. I may have gotten out of whack there, but right. Well, and then you get 65 years, 65 years of marriage and we've celebrated our 60. We'll celebrate our 67. We're still married. (laughs) She's in heaven. She's in a place waiting for me in a mansion. They're waiting for me. And the, if you told me I'm going to die next Thursday at three o'clock, I'd say, great. I can hardly wait at three Oh one. I'll be with Shirley. Wow. That's uh, beautiful. I mean, it's that definite. And, uh, so I miss her. I love her. She's all over this house. I'm still living in. We've been in this house now, 65 years. No, no, I take it back. We've been in this house 60 years because we were in New Jersey for several years, but we've been in this house 60 years and she's all over the house and in every room. And, and uh, so I'm making it on my own without her, but uh, but she's she's hovering nearby, I think. And I talk to her, and uh, there's not going to be any other woman in my life. I've had others say, "Oh, you know, there's this there's this very pretty 70 year old woman that uh, we we'd like you to meet." I said, "No, thanks. <laughs> no thanks. No, I've only had one wife, and uh, she's waiting for me, and uh, we're going to be together again soon." So uh, why don't you tell us about the work that you and Shirley did in Africa with uh, building safe water facilities um, along with Christian missionaries? Yes. Well, that was the one thing. It's called the Boone Life Center in Tanzania. And it's an 80-foot freshwater well that we brought in with the drills and the windmill. And I visited there. I broke ground for the Maasai tribes there. And they were so incredible. They, You know, the uh, Maasai tribes and the men are particularly famous for their abilities to jump. They have some ability to jump through the roof and they jump when they dance and sing. And then these colorful costumes, which was so moving to me because they came out in their best attire, which is just simple costume, but I mean, cotton, but colorful color, you know, real bright, brilliant colors. And they were, they were dancing and they were singing as we came in in this Jeep over the rocky trail that got us there from Kilimanjaro. And I, I must say, I, I got teary. They were singing. I began to sing along with them their song. And they brought me into a clearing around the well, around the uh, windmill. Uh, they had a, a kind of a, a shaman. We might call him a witch doctor, but a shaman who gave me a rod, like his rod of authority, and recognized me as a shaman. And I sat on the three-legged stool while they danced for me and sang for me. And uh, and then, Mark, I mean, forgive me if I get emotional, but they presented me with a cow, not just a scrawny, bony cow like you'd see roaming around, you know, that that they were familiar with, but one that somebody had got a brema, had taken care of, and it was a well-fed cow. And they were presenting me with something. I mean, here, I, I come there to give them, they don't have anything. 
they're living like they did 2,000 years ago. And, and, and cottages, um, sheds made of cow dung, in many cases, you can imagine what happens when it rains. So ah. anyway, and the water so polluted that the children have five-year life expectancies. And so they're giving me this cow. And, and I, through an interpreter, said, you know, I appreciate this so much, but you know, I flew here and uh, I can't take this cow home. So I'm going to leave it here. And I want you to breed it and let it have other cows. I'm going to name this cow. <laughs> I named the cow Shirley. Wow. And, and, you know, they didn't understand that. I said, that's my wife's name. And when I told my wife, Shirley, oh, yeah, you named a cow, Shirley. <laughs> yes, because this is a life giver. This She's going to make more cows. And they have. I mean, they, they've let me know that, that she did was bred. I don't know where they bred this. I don't know where that healthy-looking cow came from or where it got bred. But she has given several calves, other calves. But I said, I want you to have a vegetable garden, growing green vegetables, and call it the Shirley Boone vegetable garden. And so the Boone Life Center exists there now in Tanzania. It has been promoted and talked about on God TV, but God TV is in trouble right now and they're not they they do have exposure around the world, but I'd love you guys to know about it because I know what you've done, uh, some of what you've done so magnificently. Oh, thank you. I just wanted you to know that we are brethren that we care the same way for the same people. No, it's so important. I mean, there's nothing more important than clean water. And uh, the fact that you're supplying it to these people who need it so is just magnificent. But with literacy as well, trying to the the, the black man that, that was introduced to me as the contractor, the one who would build a school. I told him that through the translator, my my father was a contractor who built schools huh. and I dug ditches as a laborer. My brother and I uh, worked as a laborer for my dad. And we pushed concrete, we pushed wheelbarrows full of cement, poured concrete, we dug ditches, we toted lumber, and we spent the summers as day laborers making a dollar and a half or a dollar a quarter an hour so we could help pay the tuition for a Christian high school that we both wanted to go to, which my daddy with four kids and a struggling young company couldn't have afforded. I mean, he went on to become much more successful and to build schools and churches and homes but I told this black man that my dad was a contractor like him. And then they gave me a shovel and I broke ground for the school that he was going to build. And uh, I shook his hand and let him know that uh, he was like my dad. And he was doing what I had worked on for my dad in, uh, in Middle Tennessee, which he knew nothing about. But, uh, but anyway, the school has been built and uh, the kids are are in school and their literacy level is going up to at least eighth grade level. And who knows what kind of people may come yet from that part of the world and bless the world through what they learn, what they do. But mainly for now, they have clean water and they can have a longer life expectancy. And uh, I don't know if there's still, if, if, if surely the cow is still birthing more cows, I don't know. But anyway, it's been a rich, rich, wonderful experience. Wow. Well, you're giving water and education. It's, uh, what could be more important? Yeah. So the uh, concluding question of the rabbi's husband always goes from biblical discussion to uh, a very different book, which is Andre Melrose's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir, where he says, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, 
this man saved a lot of Jews and then became a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confession, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. <laughs> and you're more than six decades at the pinnacle of the musical and entertainment profession, interfacing with the most fascinating and accomplished and interesting people of several generations. What are two things that you learned about mankind? Ah, boy, that's such a great question. And uh, one you normally would want to spend a lot of time thinking about. But the words that come to me are scriptural words. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and body, and your neighbor as yourself. I mean, he said, that's the greatest commandment. Well, what, what can be better than that? I mean, love God, our creator, with all your heart, soul, mind, and your neighbor, the like unto it, the second, another commandment, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Well, if you love yourself and you want to take care of yourself and do well for yourself, then like you guys are doing, you and Erica, you you believe in what God said about love the stranger, love the, the one who doesn't have the things you have, help him, help him, help him. And uh, so I would say one of those is that first, what Jesus said is the greatest commandment, love the Lord thy God. The other is what I said to Hugh Hefner on Dinah Shore's show. He was the founder of the Playboy philosophy with his, uh, with his pipe in his mouth talking about how he was liberating men and women from all the sexual inhibitions and to be, you know, do whatever they felt like doing. And he was so proud of that. Well, I told him on that show, knowing I was going to be on, I said, you know, I always do, I did with you, Hugh, what, what I always do. I looked if there's going to be some notable person, if I can find a parallel to that person in the Bible. And boy, I found you. And his eyebrows went up. I said, Solomon, Solomon, the richest, most powerful and considered wisest man in the world, had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That is 300 other women besides his 700. And, and Hugh dropped his pipe and he said, he must have been tired. And I said, he was very tired, you, and very disillusioned and very, really uh, almost depressed. And you know, in the, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the last word that he leaves to mankind, and I think the reason God let him have all of these experiences, which we will never have, is because he said, among other things, vanity, all is vanity. There's nothing important under the sun except to uh, have a good wife and, and something to eat and some work to do and to be happy under the sun. He said all those things. But the last thing he said, and this is what I say to you, the whole duty of man, the whole reason for living is to fear God and keep his commandments. Now, Dinah, the hostess, said, what was that again? And I said, the whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. And we went away to a commercial, and he was still sitting there muttering, boy, he must have been tired. Yeah, he was. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, those two things are the way, I mean, I, the greatest commandment, love, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and, and love your neighbor uh, as yourself. And the other is fear God, keep his commandments. That's the whole duty of man. I can't think of any two better things than those. Beautiful. What, what incredible wisdom to, uh, to conclude such a fascinating discussion on. So uh, 
Pat, thank you so much for your appearance on The Rabbi's Husband and for your incredible friendship for the Jewish people, really pioneering and leading this Jewish-Christian friendship that's, I think, of world historical importance over so many decades. So thank you. Maybe. I, I appreciate that so much. And by way of saying adieu for now, you may not have known that the Israeli government actually named me, uh, gave me an ambassadorship. They named me an ambassador without portfolio, the Christian ambassador of tourism. Back when I was uh, promoting tourism and hosting tours to Israel. When would that have been? Uh, uh, boy, it was during Saddam Hussein's reign uh, when he sent a uh, fatwa out across the world saying, kill Christians and Jews. 1990 or so? Yeah, yeah, right about in there. And I was in the, in the Far East and on my way to Indonesia when that fatwa went out from Saddam Hussein, kill Americans, Christians, and Jews. And I realized that my own minister friends got in touch with me, my wife, because I was on my way to Indonesia, Muslim country. And he said, they said, come home, come home. <laughs> You've got a target on your back. They can get all three with you. Christians, Americans, and Jews, all they have to do is one shot and they get all three. <laughs> and so I came home from, uh, I didn't go to Indonesia and I still owe them a concert, but I don't know if it'll ever happen. But you're still an ambassador. Yeah, yeah. They gave me an ambassadorship, named me a Christian ambassador of tourism. That's great. By the Israeli uh, Ministry of Tourism. So I treasure that. And they also gave me the Israel Cultural Award, which is the highest award they can give a non-Jew. And so I, I mean, that was presented to me by Rabin. And, uh, and so I, you know, I've been honored. And to know that my song Exodus is on the wall of the righteous Gentile, I mean, what greater honor can they give me? It's nothing. Well, Pat, God bless you, and thank you so much. Well, God bless you and your rabbi, your rabbi wife. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. You are the God of the brave. If you believe there's a breakthrough in the house tonight, clap your hands up high. It's our breakthrough. breakthrough. You are the God. You are the God of the breakthrough. Hold it when I can't see my way through. And I really don't If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatzalah and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.